Hello, beautiful listeners. It's Rob with Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We know you love the stories we tell, and we love telling them. However, producing and hosting the podcast is not free, but there's a way you can help. Find us on Patreon. Our Patreon members get access to exclusive content, early episode releases, and all other sorts of goodies. Go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod for as little as a buck a month. Every cent we take in goes back to making the show bigger and better. Thank you, we love you, and as always, hold fast and enjoy the show. So I noticed uh, a, a piece of news that said that the uh, FAA is hiring about 1,200 new air marshals. And uh, frankly, I think we should do it. This podcasting thing doesn't work out. I am not getting on an airplane with these crazy people. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think we have the perfect cover story where, where it's Kyle as a you know one of those sensitive singer-songwriter types Jesus that... Christ. that Goes around in his three roadies. <laughs> I was in a men's acapella choir in uh, college. I mean, it really is just like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. I'm just oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> I'm just gonna DB Cooper this bitch. Yeah. Like, very first one, I'm like, I'm out. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm not even gonna steal anything. I'm just jumping out. Do, do you remember our DB Cooper episode? Why I t- why I talked about why there are no longer back ramps on these I, planes? I didn't say I was going to do it twice. <laughs> What was that thought? Oh, that was just Chris running into the back bulkhead of an A321. <laughs> well, I mean, the way the way Boeing has been building these things, I'll just be able to like push my way out of it. Oh, that's so fair. Actually, yeah. like, those new ones just they fall right out of the sky. So when I'm, we were flying back from uh, California two weeks ago. Oh and, yeah, welcome um, back. By the way, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, the the red eye we took from L.A. to Philly before we transferred back to Pittsburgh. Um, the most Philadelphia person ever uh, was on board because she left in handcuffs after smacking a flight attendant. Oh, I was about to ask if she ate a horse turd. <laughs> <laughs> it's very on brand with Philly. Yeah, it's oh man, these people. I it, <laughs> that's the yeah, thing seriously. is every time I every time I fly now, there's a secret like. There's a part of me that's going, I hope this doesn't happen. And then there's the other part of me that's going, the more violent part of me that's going, I hope this happens. I can't wait for this to happen. <laughs> so, well, like, that shit's just been happening on Spirit forever anyway. Yeah. Like, the last time we took Spirit to Bradenton, we had to get out and push the plane to get it to go down the runway. <laughs> <laughs> Give it the old jump start. Yeah. Crank up the old Tin Lizzie. That's whenever uh, we had to move stuff from our, uh, our luggage into our carry-on because yeah. we were over the weight. But it was all going on the same plane, so who gives a shit? <laughs> like I, I ain't throwing it out. <laughs> well, the way, well, that's the question: is do you want to go to Florida in essentially the wheelbarrow position, or do you mm. want to butt skip there? <laughs> it's, I mean, that's that's the big question with the. I mean, with these. I mean, the admittedly, the fact that they've downgraded from holding the planes together with duct tape to holding them together with scotch tape is is disturbing. <laughs> right. You gotta save that money somewhere. I was gonna say that's what it is. That's how they made they a cost the, airline. They pass the savings on to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thieves, rogues, and renegades is brought to you by our friends at Spirit Airlines. Get out and push. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, our friends at Spirit Airlines are right. This is Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am Kyle Graper. And sadly, this week, we well, last time we were missing Kyle, this time we were sadly missing Michael Arnett, our beloved Padre. Uh, uh, this is sounding e- e- eulogistic. No, he's he's fine. He just, <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. He just, he just isn't here. He just like, can't be here tonight. Yeah, he's, he's working. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> he's got, well... Vinny's we, still here. Yeah, we still got the Vinny. 
Oh, man, I'm looking forward to when we're missing him for an episode. That'll be so nice. So quiet. You just don't like because he drops everything on you. Yeah. Then oh, yeah, that's bites the most you in the dick. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, dropping things is the most offensive thing he's done to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, other than the, you know, the sporadic dick biting. Yep. Uh, so today's uh, today's topic, we are... Uh, we're, we're getting bloody. Yeah, we really are. And it's, even it's, by our standards. Even by our standards. We are talking about... I the, think this is the first one we've done that uh, there was an action figure for. Mm, oh, yeah, the I, I would have to look. Yeah. I would have to go back and look, but you might be right. Yeah, there's a McFarlane action figure. I refuse to believe there's not a D.B. Cooper one. Let's make it. Marketing opportunity. Bookmark yeah, it. I mean, it's, it's very funny. Bookmark it. This is R.I.P. If you're listening out there. If, if 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 you steal it, we're coming for you. We're, yeah, we're gonna have to. We're gonna have. We got we two weeks till this episode comes out. We gotta get on it. We're getting our legal team, and by our legal team, I mean Chris's sister. Right. I can't afford her. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Besides, I have my own lawyer. That's true. <laughs> so yeah, so Elizabeth Bathory, uh, known to history as the Blood Countess, was a uh, 16th and 17th century Hungarian noblewoman who went down in history for supposedly killing anywhere between 880 and 650 young girls now whether this is true or she was the victim of a conspiracy engineered to bring about her downfall is a matter of debate one which we will approach with our usual consideration and sensitivity now the one thing i do want to mention while we're on subject of debate and i only heard this from one source Mm -hmm. the pronunciation of her name is bouchery but if it was anybody else i would be like okay this is just weird it was on the lore podcast. Ugh, and yeah. man. <laughs> Thing is, I, I like I like what they do, but man, but they lean hard into the But he's so good at what he does. Aaron Mankey's yeah. unbelievable. He so is like very it, good. you want to talk about somebody that's thorough, like just start going through unobscured. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the thing too is I, I was I was gonna make mention of this a little this, later. I was gonna was say this to, will probably lead into the next one. That was a good time to bring it up now. Um I I'm normally pretty good with the languages, the accents, the, pres- the, the, the pronunciations of things. Good luck. This is the one where it kind of goes out the window for me. We're going to be pronouncing a lot of Hungarian names and places. Now, I, like I said, I'm normally pretty good at this stuff, but once we get anywhere that was behind the Iron Curtain, I start to kind of lose it a little bit. Yeah. Um, as, as someone who once spent 25 minutes trying to order a vodka Red Bull from a Hungarian speaker in Budapest. Yeah, as far as I know, yeah, you're, the I only one know. Of, you're the only one at this table who's been to Hungary, It's right? beautiful. It is incredible. Uh, I, what I love about Hungary is, like, you know, we go down to D.C. and see our, like, our, you know, Hero Square equivalent. It's a bunch of dudes in powdered wigs. Theirs are fucking barbarians on horses. Yep. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a very axe-heavy. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's very metal city. <laughs> yeah. Any Anyone who up until the Middle Ages, your leaders were known as cons. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I do enjoy that. Um, but, yeah. It, it, it. I'm not bad with, like, Russian... Polish. Once we start to get down to like Czech Republic, Hungary, yeah, I have Romania, absolutely no idea how any of this works. This is where it falls apart for me. So if you are anybody who kind of has a hand on Hungarian pronunciation, please get in touch with us and feedback. I it, I know it's going to be very critical. I'm okay with it. Uh, one of my best friends' father was uh, his late father um, was Hungarian, and he was uh, English is his second language. Even he would complain about Hungarian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's wholly unique. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it was it's like not a Latin base. No, it's like you. It doesn't. 
it doesn't help you learn anything. Like mm. once you learn a romance language, it's it's pretty easy it's, to figure out well, the rest. It's, it's sort but of, it stands alone so much. Yeah, it's sort of like a language, uh, like a language isolate, kind mm. of like ancient mm. Sumerian yep. was. Yeah. It, I, nobody kind of knows where it popped up from. Like, was it just like some one isolated group of Pechenegs that the language just stuck over the centuries? Who the hell knows? Probably. I haven't looked into it. Um, I, although I, it does remind me of, I was watching a, a special on the BBC and it was it was um, Stephen Fry talking about his, his family's background with the Holocaust. And he was talking about his Hungarian grandfather who emigrated to the, the, the UK back in the, back in the 30s. He said he used to, to let you know what we're going into, he said the man used to pronounce pineapple upside down kick is pino play ubshidie duvna Yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> this is what we're getting into. Um, so, uh, also a second content warning aside from my horrible Hungarian pronunciations. Uh, this is going to car- uh, this episode is going to carry some pretty graphic descriptions of some of this woman's supposed acts. Yeah, she's not known as the blood countess for nothing. Um, so just be warned that there's going to be parts of this episode where we are going to be getting into the very, very dark, bloody, nitty-gritty of what she did, and it's going to be unpleasant. So if this is going to be something that may be unpleasant for you to hear, you can give this one a skip. We're not going to be offended. So before we proceed, uh, as always, we want to give honor to our sources. Now for me, my primary sources, uh, I had three literary sources that I leaned on. The first was Elizabeth Bathory, history's most prolific serial killer, with a question mark. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the question mark's important to our story today uh, by James Oliver. We also have The Bloody Countess, The Atrocities of Ershebet Battery by Valentine Penrose, which is a uh, wonderful name, <laughs> and Infamous Lady by Kimberly Craft, which I thought was a Sade song. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> Anything uh, uh, sources-wise to contribute, gentlemen? I mean, other than Mankey's stuff. Mm, yeah. Which again, like, he didn't say Bathory, and it just it weirded me out. <laughs> Mine was uh, predominantly Hammer Horror films. That's yeah, true. I was as we know, are super accurate. As, as our resident cinephile, we know which angle you're taking with all of this. Um, <laughs> there are an awful lot of films about this woman. Oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll an awful talk lot about why. I mean, there's a lot of confusing boners around this character, so. I, I get it. It's it's a lot of hammer horror and these French art house films mm-hmm. in the 70s mm-hmm. and, and and all these films in the 2000s. Yeah, there were a were, lot in the 2000s. Well, because filming in the former Soviet republics was very, very cheap. Um, I mean, there's a reason that Hostel was so popular. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, anything else for the good of the order before we move into it, gentlemen? I'm good. I think everybody should watch more horror films. Mm, I agree. Yeah, everybody likes to do it around Halloween. I say, no, work it into Christmas. Yeah, keep going. Working into Christmas. Show Grandma Human Centipede. Ugh. Ugh. It's so bad it's not even that... It's not even fun. It's not It's, even not, fun. it's not enjoyable in any way. The shape only part and of that movie that, that I liked was whenever the, like, the centipede starts walking. Just because. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, ah. Uh, uh. <laughs> Hungary has long been a place of death. <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm your co-host, Chris Miller. <laughs> Leading into it. So yes, Hungary has long been a place of death and conflict. Its Great Plains have been a crossroads for the, for the movements of steppe nomads and horse-born peoples for millennia, as a staging ground for those groups to attack the Romans, the Byzantines, and other more settled societies. It was a crux of the centuries-long wars, the back-and-forth fight, for the balance of power between the Holy Roman Empire and the emergent Ottomans. 
and a battleground not only between Christianity and Islam, but also the various forms of Christianity after the Protestant Reformation. Hungary has for centuries also been a battlefield of the more temporal conflicts between the various Christian kingdoms of Eastern and Central Europe and the kings and czars of the area that were no stranger to having to fight on its plains and hills. Hungary was a scene of slaughter on an industrial scale in both world wars and spent decades as the subject of state oppression under the Soviet Union. This has all made certain that the Hungarian world has been subject to great violence and bloodshed over its history, but one particular story would add a very different element to the landscape of slaughter and suffering. One more personal, more insidious, and more scandalous. Erzsebed Batory de Eshed was born on the 7th of August, 1560, in one of her family's estates in Nayirbator, eastern Hungary. She was the daughter of Baron Georgs VI Batory and his wife, the Baroness Anna. The Bathories were wealthy, and they were connected. In the still highly feudal and intensely stratified society of the 1560s, they had rulership over hundreds of thousands of acres of land, dozens of castles, hundreds of towns of villages, and their hands in every sort of agricultural or tradecraft enterprise you could find in the region. The Bathories had risen from the ranks of obscure minor knights in the 1260s and had been a part of the high Hungarian ruling class ever since. Elizabeth's uncle was the king of Poland-Lithuania. She had a cousin who was the governor, called the Voivode of Transylvania, and an older brother that would go on to take the same position after that cousin died. The Bathory family was connected to other noble houses through marriage and treaty across a wide stretch of Europe, ranging from Germany to the Ukraine to the Baltic. And we have very little concrete information about Elizabeth's childhood. For example, we don't even know exactly how many siblings she had, because I couldn't find a single note confirming how many in any research material we used, and apparently the church records that show the births and christenings of her siblings exist, but they haven't been digitized. <laughs> so, barring one of us getting on a plane to Budapest, we're shit out of luck there. Now, according to every... Taking spirit. <laughs> <laughs> What's Hungarian for get out and push? <laughs> now, according to everything I've seen, it's between four and seven siblings, and that's quite a range. However, based upon when, where, and how she grew up, there are some assumptions about her young life that we can reasonably make. She was also almost certainly raised under the care of governesses and wet nurses without much intimate connection with her parents. She would have received a consummate education up to the age of about 12, which is when it tended to stop for girls. It would go on longer for boys, because by about then, a highborn girl was getting up to marrying, marrying age. She would have learned religious studies, languages like Latin, Greek, German, and possibly Polish, arithmetic, rhetoric, and writing. She would have been highly literate, but discouraged from reading too much, as that would not be fitting of a girl of her status. She would have learned to ride horses and how to shoot a bow, particularly given the Hungarian roots as horse nomads, and she would have still borne witness to courtly sports like wrestling, fencing, and jousting. One other thing we can almost be certain of is that she would have borne witness to surprising amounts of violence. This was a very violent time and a very violent society at its baseline, and this particular time was incredibly complicated politically, which would have kicked the violence up another notch. The state of never-ending war with the Ottomans was not going particularly well at this point. Half of what is now Hungary was under Ottoman control, and there was an endless profusion of border skirmishes, raids, and sieges that would take place all along the dividing line, which was less than 30 miles south of Bathory lands. Now, the Bathory estates also tended to cluster around the, ra around the main route from Istanbul to Vienna, which, uh, which, while that was a source of wealth for the family, would also make sure that if the Ottomans sent an army in that direction, they were right in the crosshairs. 
As such, aside from the usual public executions and tortures that were a matter of provincial rulership, Elizabeth would have been forced by court protocol to witness all of these things, and there were constant examples being made of Ottoman prisoners or those who had assisted Ottoman raiding parties or somehow stumbled into court covered in blood bearing news of yet another attack. <clears throat> no matter what, she would have learned that cruelty and the application of violence was a necessity of noble standing, that order and the defense of the realm relied upon it, particularly in the face of all the enemies around them. And she would have felt grief, and a lot of it. A sister died when she was only six, and Elizabeth's mother Anna died in childbirth in 1570 when, Anna was only, or when Elizabeth was only ten. Now this would already have a crushing effect on any child, but it got worse when her father Georg died several months later at the age of only 36 when an old battle wound had reopened and he ended up with blood poisoning. Good lord. <laughs> it was a violent time, like it, I it said. It was definitely a violent time, especially considering that there was a very sizable peasant revolt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's why a lot of these punishments, <laughs> these punishments that were doled out, were so violent. They were so like one of the first things that it's documented that Elizabeth had seen uh, was whenever her father took her to. Uh, it was essentially public torture of a thief, where a man was sewn into a horse. A man <laughs> was sewn into a horse. And yeah. he took the kids. <laughs> it's, it's, like so, you're yeah. going to see the Wiggles live. Yeah. Oh, God. You know, I think I'd rather watch the man getting sent into a horse. <laughs> it's it, it, Those Australian accents just get so grating after a while. <laughs> so passing into the care of her uncle, who took over administration of uh, their lands, we have little in regards to how Elizabeth's life was going as she entered her teens until suddenly in September of 1573... Church records note that she had a baby. Now, she had just turned 13 years old. Now, the father is simply listed as a peasant boy. No name. Now, this opens up some questions. One, was there a budding love between her and some teenage peasant, and was it consensual or against her will? Two, was it indeed some peasant boy, or someone at court covering their ass? Mm -hmm. And three, was it actually authentic? Because this record that this appears in was made in 1701. It was supposedly a copy of earlier records, but we don't know if this notation mm -hmm. appears in the original from the 1570s or it was added in the later copy to somehow to some uh, by someone to besmirch her character and alter the narrative. Now, if she did have a child as a teen, she's not the first, but if it's a fake piece of spin trying to make her look even worse a century after her death, well, that's not the first time that's happened either. Mm -hmm. Now, either way, so the story goes... The child was given to a woman list, uh, trusted by the family who was paid handsomely for her trouble, taken to Wallachia and what's now Romania, and was never seen by Elizabeth again. Lots of, you know, tender intimacy in the noble life in, in, in this period. So in 1575, at the age of 15, Elizabeth finally did what she had been brought into this world in a noble family to do, at least in society's eyes. She got married. It was an arranged marriage. How old was she? Was, I think she was... 15. Eight. No, no, no. But I, I mean, like, it was arranged, I think, when she was, like, nine, right? Yeah, about five yeah. years previous. Yeah. yeah. Her new husband was Ferenc II Najdadi, Count of Vas. The two had actually been engaged for the previous five years, as you mentioned, uh, and arranged, of course, by their respective families, and the two didn't actually meet until their wedding day, which oh, was wow. attended by 4,500 guests. Jesus. Yep. 
Yep. Yeah, there were wealthy families, and then there were these families. Mm-hmm. Old money when the money was new. Yeah. <laughs> now, technically, Elizabeth was marrying down a little bit. The Najdadi clan was a little poorer than the Bathrys, but they had holdings further away from the border with the Ottomans, and as such, the new link between the families would give the Bathrys something to fall back on if the Ottoman advance swallowed their lands. Now, Ferenc was just shy of 20 years old, so not as big of a as an age gap as you sometimes would see. Yeah, especially in, like, in arranged marriages, yeah. they, it was really no big deal. Yeah. And um, he was handsome, he was fit, and he already had a reputation for being a good soldier, but he was practically illiterate. Kind of a case of great-looking house, but it's a shame nobody's home. <laughs> uh, contrary to his now clearly spectacularly intelligent wife, she had some brains on her. She was very, very smart. Now, this match was one of political expedience, but the two appear to have had mutual love and respect for each other, or at least an attraction. However, the two would be uh, would immediately be spending a lot of time apart as Ferenc got himself a new gig leading a large division of the Hungarian army. As such, he was rarely home, and the other of Elizabeth's expected duties, having children and continuing the family line, would have to wait. Now, Ferenc was actually very good at what he did, rolling back Ottoman holdings and giving the Hungarians more breathing room than they had in half a century. In the meantime, Elizabeth would take over the management of the estates, and she had a great talent for this. <clears throat> a lot of surviving writing talks about how surprised people were that she was uh, that she was actually this on top of things, handling any issues that came her way, and actually managing to increase the tax revenues of their lands and holdings and buying up a few more states along the way. Now, Elizabeth also showed a passion for helping downtrodden and destitute women, organizing charitable giving for women whose husbands had been captured or killed by the Ottomans, or women who had been raped and impregnated. Maybe this is some indicator that what happened before might be true. We don't know. Finally, in 1585, once Farinch had some real R&R time, their first child came along, a daughter named Anna. Four more would follow, two daughters followed by two sons. Orsolia in 1590, Kadalin in 1594, Andras in 1596, and Paul in 1598. And in a remarkable turn of luck, all five would survive into adulthood. A remarkable achievement in a time where up to half of children, nobility included, died before their 10th birthday. Now on January 4th, 1604, Ferenc died, having suffered for years with a severe case of dropsy that led to a lethal infection. By then, however, the death of the Count was the least of the problems regarding what was supposedly going on in the household of Elizabeth Bathory. Now, the first rumblings that something was wrong were reports of particular cruelty towards the servants. Now, cruelty not being particularly unusual in the grand scheme, but this began to stand out. Mm -hmm. Supposedly, Bathory would chain her servants up at night, keeping the shackles tight to the point where they would wear away the skin and flesh around the wrists and ankles. She had a particular penchant for beatings, again, not that unusual, but these would be to the point of near death, far beyond the realm of corrective discipline. Yeah, these were broken bones, lost digits, lost eyes. And using scourges with sharp metal hooks that would tear and rend the flesh into absolute tatters, things that would make the flagellants go, whoa, steady on. She was also incredibly quick to anger. Yeah. And that was something that they mentioned before, and it was to the point where, like... um, you know, if somebody, one of the, the servant girls was combing her hair, if they would, if it, there was a tangle and she felt any pain at all, any tug at all, that girl was beat. Mm-hmm. And like, it, immediately. 
and not just like a slap or oh no a few licks like taken taken to the room designed for it passion of the christ level shit yes yeah yeah she was uh and it was the thing that really got me about this woman and it's almost a little too hollywood um is that depending on what your role was that's how your uh that's how it would be metered out. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you were seamstress, you would be stabbed with needles. They would yep. like drive needles under your skin. If you were a baker, they would burn you. And it was just like that's almost a little too romantic. But like some of these stories, man, like this was a sadistic bitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now the screams during some of these beatings were supposedly so loud that they could be heard in the castle's villages, which in the area of her territories were often hundreds of meters down the hillside away from these Jeez. castles. Now, some whispers told of her murdering some of her servants and maids for their disobedience, strangling them with scarves or rope. She would torment the maids by whipping them with nettles, or, as you mentioned, putting needles into their skin or under their fingernails, or jabbing them with hot pokers fresh from the fireplace. But something else was driving Elizabeth, a desire to regain something that was quickly slipping away from her. Elizabeth Bathory was getting older. Older. Having had five children and getting on in years, and one assumes just by dint of living in the 16th century, she started to get bags under her eyes. Her skin began to sag and wrinkle. Her body was not as taut as it used to be. She had begun to go gray around the temples, and more blemishes had begun to appear. And another law, and an endless laundry list of things that are visibly happening to all of us sitting at this table right now. <sighs> you can, if you look at me long enough, like you can just <laughs> you see can watch it. us visibly <laughs> aging. If you get, if you like, put your ear next to me, you just hear me getting older. It's like, it's weird, man. All, uh, all four of us, especially when Mike's here, all four of us have managed to turn into our own portraits of Dorian Gray. Oh, it's God. nuts. <laughs> And as the story goes, however, when she was doing some sort of terribly abusive act on a servant, she had some blood splash onto her skin. She apparently noticed or believed that where the blood had landed, the skin appeared younger and healthier. A fateful connection had been made in Elizabeth's mind. She needed blood. Now, she had a ready source, either collecting it from her usual activities, the floggings and such, and she would apply it to her skin, but it didn't seem to be working, at least not to the extent she craved. So she focused her wrath on the younger, prettier maids around her castles and holdings. This fresher, younger blood she felt worked better, but there simply wasn't enough of it. She would need a better, more prolific source. Now, she had a few options. She could kill the pretty young maids, but that would cut into the available workforce around her castles, and that wouldn't do. Good help is hard to find, after all. Now, it, I, at no point in any of this does it come across as like I probably shouldn't take all this blood because it's in people. <laughs> that, yeah. that never, that never that, comes. That's up. a that's a barrier to most of us. To her, it's not. Mm. At least according to the testimony, right? And we're gonna get to this. Yeah. <laughs> now, highborn women such as Elizabeth also would hold uh, what's known as a uh, gynasium, a sort of finishing program for young women of the more minor nobility, the landed gentry, and the wealthier parts of the merchant class, which would send their daughter, their teenage daughters to get some courtly experience, picking up the finer manners and, cult- and culturing that would help to earn them good husbands. 
However, wealthier girls tended to be missed when they don't come home. So Elizabeth turned to her final resource at hand, the many, many peasant girls that lived among her lands. She would snag them in a variety of ways. Some would come to the castles looking for work, and they would be offered a place on the staff, only to wake up bound and gagged, ready for their mistress's sadistic whims. Other times, you would simply find them on the road and offer the same, with the same result. Sometimes it was simply easier to send your armed men down into a village, or particularly to disguise them as Ottomans, rampaging through an isolated town, kidnapping the young girls, and bringing them back. Now, either way, they wouldn't be reported missing, and even if they were, who would who would the report go to to do something about it? The Lady Bathory. None other than the Countess herself. I mean, it's, it's the point where we're talking about press gangs. Yeah. Yeah. And... You know, whenever these girls do end up going missing, um, the family is compensated. Yeah. So, a lot of these families were just offering their children. Yeah. Because they they had a pretty good idea that she wasn't coming back. Yeah, we're going to give you 50 kuklex or whatever. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what it was. Wasn't, it, the, the, wasn't was. the currency in Star Trek? Uh, it's Quatloos. So, <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> now... It started simply as the kidnapped girls having their throats slit and being drained of their life essence into tubs in which Elizabeth would dip and slather the blood all over herself and absorb their youthfulness into her skin. But there was something that she realized. She liked their pleas, their screams, their shrieks of pain, so why not take a more circuitous route to the eventual conclusion? It turns out that when Elizabeth Bathory turned her mind to sadistic torture, she could be very inventive indeed. She would repeat some of the same tender mercies that she had applied to her staff, the beatings, the binding, the red-hot pokers, the needles under the finger and toenails. She would also fill tubs full of melting snow and mountain ice, dunking the girls in until they would be on the edge of death from hypothermia. Yeah, and then she'd throw them outside. Yeah. She would fill tubs with thorn bushes and nettles, throwing the girls in and enjoying the screams as their skin was pierced, scratched, and burned. She would throw hot fat and lie on them, watching their skin bubble and blister as they were terribly burned. She would use knives to cut the skin, bleeding the girls and then sewing up the wounds, coming back later to slit the stitches and repeat the process. She would use these same blades to cut off extremities, removing fingers Toes, ears, noses, lips, eyelids, nipples, and genitals. It's said that she would cut slices from the girls' thighs and backsides, cooking them over a hot stone and feeding the flesh to its former owner. She would make the girls hold glowing red coals or put them in their mouths or insert them into other orifices, along with red-hot iron rods. She would blind her victims take out their tongues, or tear away pieces of flesh with red-hot iron tongs. She would use the more standard implements of torture, like the rack, the Spanish donkey, the strapado, and other god-awful implements usually reserved for those under extreme questioning, but with nothing for those on the receiving end to confess to. The hunting dogs that traveled with her were set loose on the girls with predictable results. She would attempt amateur surgeries, grafting, removing of body parts, trepanning, (laughs) <laughs> in a manner that would make Rock Terrio and the Anhill Hill kids look like a rehearsal for what had happened. Girls would be broken on the wheel or hanged until almost dead. Whatever the means of torture, 
Elizabeth Bathory seemed to revel in the suffering, and it would always end in the bodies being drained of blood for the aging countess to soak in. It seemed that she believed that the suffering was necessary, that it brought out some sort of essential essence for the final desired product, that blood from a girl who had suffered terribly was better suited to purpose than that of a girl who hadn't. That's at least according to later witness statements. Now, some claim to have seen the bodies, but no remains were ever found upon investigation. The rumbles that something was going on in the Bathory castles started as the 17th century dawned. Now, there's no recording of exactly what the rumors entailed, only later mentions that people were talking about it. But tales of peasant girls going into the castle never to be seen again were starting to permeate the greater part of Hungary. But those sorts of stories happen all the time. Now, supposedly, however, things took a shift when Bathory started to realize something. She was running out of available peasant girls. So, out of desperation, the one group that Elizabeth felt she originally couldn't use suddenly became fair game. The girls of the upper class were now part of her crop of potential victims. Stories abound of young girls from the gentry traveling to receive some courtly finishing at the Countess's castles, only to go missing. Maybe they had been kidnapped for ransom by brigands. That happened, but in this case, there were no ransom demands. The Countess's explanation was often that Ottoman raiding parties had clearly started operating in the area and had made off with the girls. But her escorts always returned safely, saying that they had been ordered to leave the castle, that the girl would remain in the care of the Countess. However, Bathory had one true weapon on her side, no matter who was making noise about her supposed activities. Her position, her rank, insulated her from most accusations of wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. If you were to come for a countess and you didn't outrank her, then you needed something concrete. So long as she didn't aim too high, or someone in a high enough position wasn't willing to take it seriously, then she was bulletproof. However, some of the people raising concerns over the rumors did have such a connection, and that would be the countess's undoing. The one to start making noise in real circles of power about Elizabeth Bathory was a Lutheran minister named Isvan Magyari, who happened to have the ear of the Holy Roman Emperor himself at court in Vienna as a trusted voice on how to deal with the Hungarians at large and Hungarian Protestants in particular, the Holy Roman Empire Emperor being a Catholic at this point. He must have heard rumors, and while most people who have heard the rumors merely blew them off, thinking there was no way that a noblewoman could be that sadistic for the sake of simply being so, or simply kept it as salacious gossip, Magyari really got a bug up his ass about it. Starting in 1604, he would spend the next six years, every chance he got, encouraging the Habsburg Emperor to proceed against this Bathory woman, to make an example of her. Now, some of Magyari's writings survive to this day, and this dude did not like women. Like, his tone is similar to that of a particularly noisy incel, he just starts with Eve in the garden and goes his way from there. Maybe this made him particularly bent towards going after a powerful, capable woman, but it finally reached the point where the Holy Roman Emperor agreed to do something about it, probably just to get Magyari to shut the fuck up. So what did he do? He let the shit roll downhill. He passed on the request to King Matthias II of Hungary, head of his client state, and said, you take care of this. And as 1610 rolled around, the first attempt at making a legal complaint and building a case against Elizabeth Bathory would come to pass and start moving on eventually bringing her, rightly or wrongly, under the thumb of Hungarian justice. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Life is too short for bad cocktails. A good party can be a great party with a signature drink and the right bartender making it. 
From happy hour to reunion or an intimate dinner to a lavish wedding, The Last Word Cocktail Company can provide everything you need to make your next event an experience that your guests will never forget. The Last Word offers in-person and virtual cocktail classes for both groups and individuals to up your game and teach you the techniques to make the perfect libation. You can learn the art of the Manhattan, the elegance of the martini, and any of the classics from pre-prohibition to modern. When you throw a party, why throw a bad party? And when it comes to cocktails, don't just have a say. Have the last word. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Last Word PGH for more information. Welcome back to the story. The full-fledged investigation into Elizabeth Bathory's supposed crimes began to take shape at the beginning of the 1610s as Matthias II, King of Hungary, made the decision to launch an official royal inquest. He assigned Georgi Torzhov, the Palatine of Hungary, essentially his chancellor, to run the investigation, who in turn hired two notaries, Andras Kerestori and Moses Shiraki, to begin to collect evidence and witness statements beginning in March of 1610. By the end of the year, the two notaries had collected over 300 witness statements, not an easy thing to do where the only way to get around was by two legs or four. Now, these named not only Bathory as the architect of the atrocities, but four servants in particular as her immediate accomplices. The witness statements contained the laundry list of horrible acts that we spoke about before the break, and this was enough for Torjo to write the king, requesting permission to arrest Elizabeth, and this was granted. On the 30th of December, 1610, Torjo and a party of armed men traveled to Szechia Castle in the Little Carpathians, where Slovakia now is today, and placed Bathory under what amounts to house arrest. Now, of course, when you own a castle, however, the courtroom gets brought to you, rather than vice versa, and at Szechia, a committee of jurists made up of local nobles was convened to hear the statements taken by the two notaries and to hear statements from the four supposed accomplices. Now, all four accomplices, Dorotia Semtej, Ilona Yo, Karatina Benica, and Janos Oivory, had confessed to their role after being put to the question, that is, tortured, which at this point was not actually considered to be credible in a court of law. However, their statements were uh, still heard and recorded by the jurors, and before Bathory even appeared in the courtroom on the 7th of January, 1611, the four accomplices were taken away. Now, the going punishment at that time for this sort of murder was to be publicly impaled, a fun little leftover from the days of Vlad Tepes and a favorite tactic of Bathory's late husband. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was so fond of doing it that like, even his, even the men under his command were extremely like, uncomfortable around yeah. him. Like his his pension for violence was a little, uh, even by like wartime standards, yeah. pretty fucked up. Well, and and he was also an unbelievably skilled soldier. Well, yeah, like, he, he was, was very was good at what he did. The Black Prince of Hungary, like he was. And he started what essentially like as a lieutenant, and he was a general in a matter of months. Yeah, yeah. and and imp impalement is something of a regional favorite at this point. Mm -hmm. And it's it, because of Vlad Tepes, like a century and a half before, the better part mm -hmm. of a century and a half before, it had entered the popular culture by this point. It was a story that the Ottomans would hear about, oh, what happens when you go up towards the Carpathians? you got to watch out for some of those people. They're nuts. They would put everybody on the sharp end of a stick, ass first. And yeah, and, and you're alive when they do it. And you're alive when they do it. Yeah, and you don't impale a corpse. Mm -hmm. But the Romanian, but the but the Wallachians, the the Hungarians, they also would have heard these stories and gone, "Well, they know we're we're going to do it. We might as we, well We might them. as well do it." Yeah. And it's a long and excruciating death. Because if you don't know how this form of impaling works, it's your, your body weight yeah, is what. Yeah. Yep. They, they they put you on the end of a sharpened stake lengthways. Mm -hmm. And they lift you up 
and they let gravity do the work. Um, and if they're really good, they do it in a way that misses all of your vital organs. Yep. Mm-hmm. So like, you sit there for days. It's essentially like being being crucified, but they take the through way rather than the bypass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is it is unpleasant. Now, however, since the four had turned King's Witness in the trial, they were all privately hanged in the woods outside the castle. Now, before she appeared in court, uh, Bathory's son Paul, her two sons-in-law, and Georgi Turjo appear to have reached some kind of agreement by which Bathory would spend the rest of her days in a nunnery. The trial would conclude with the blame placed solely on the four dead servants, and some of the family's holdings, a significant minority thereof, but considerable nonetheless, would be surrendered to the crown and some directly to Torjo. However, this deal was declined, and frustratingly, we're not quite sure by who, as the documents associated with the deal have since been lost. It definitely sounds like enough of the narrative came out that they just realized they couldn't sweep it under the rug. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, there's also an element of path of least resistance, mm. too. Just get it out of the way. Put her away. Get her to a nun- get thee to a nunnery. It's also worth noting that, and it's something we've kind of glossed over a little bit, is just how fabulously wealthy she was. Yeah. So that probably had something to do with it. Well, I mean, yeah, how many... How many people, how many wealthy people commit crimes worth billions of dollars and end up going to a a resort-level prison? Right. You know, going to Club Fed. So, yeah, on the 7th of January, the only day Elizabeth Bathory went in front of the court, the day was spent hearing more recorded witness statements being read and some made in person. Now, Gyorgy Torjo claimed in front of the jury that he had found a girl still alive, already having been tortured and prepared to meet her ultimate end, but he had saved her, and he found another bot, the body of another girl ready to be drained of her blood. He also claimed that when he arrived at the castle and broke in, Bathory was discovered bathing in a big old tub of blood. Now, however, the living girl was not brought before the court. Uh, there were no corroborating statements made to back up what Torsha was saying, and no physical evidence was presented. Now, Bathory was not brought up to make a statement in her own defense, nor was she examined by the barristers, the jury, or the judges. That day, without retiring for any deliberation, the jury unanimously declared Bathory guilty on all charges. To be returned to confinement and to await her sentencing at the king's pleasure. Now, on the 25th of January, 1611, Georgi Torjo wrote a letter to King Matthias, puppet ruler of Hungary at the time, with the findings of the court and a recommended punishment, waiting for an affirmative reply from the king in order to carry it out. He got a reply quite quickly, and thus the sentence was carried out. Elizabeth Bathory was to be locked away in Shecha Castle, and the vast majority of her land seized by the crown to be distributed to loyal nobles in order to, admin- uh, in order to administrate. Now, only about 25% of the Bathory holdings remained in the family's hands, which were still tens of thousands of acres and quite a few towns and villages, but this crippled their standing in Hungary and in the Holy Roman Empire. On the 15th of February, 1611, Bathory was finally officially locked away. Now, stories say that she was bricked up into a single chamber in the castle's main tower, but there's no structural or archaeological evidence for this in the castle's remains, which are still standing. It's far more likely that she was confined to the castle's grounds themselves, able to walk around on the battlements and in the courtyard, perhaps even to go walking or riding in the surrounding country under heavy supervision. Now, despite the severity of the crime she had been accused of, she was still nobility, and high nobility at that, and her wealth and position still have and wealth and position still have their benefits when you get sentenced, much like they do today. 
And she was already 50 years old when she went into captivity, and her health began to rapidly decline. By the end of 1613, she made her will, leaving her remaining holdings to be divided amongst her children, and on the evening of the 20th of August, 1614, Bathory began to complain to her bodyguard that despite it being a hot night, her hands were freezing cold. She couldn't get them warm, that she was feeling ill and shaky. He told her to go lie down, that she'd feel better in the morning, and that isn't what happened. <laughs> the next morning, Elizabeth Bathory was found dead in her bed at the age of 54, likely killed by what was probably a stroke or some kind of cardiac episode. She was to be buried in the, in the churchyard at Chechia, but the local populace threw such a fit that it nearly caused a riot, so they transferred her corpse to her hometown of Eshed, where it was interred in the family crypt. Now, sadly, the crypt was destroyed by heavy artillery during the Soviet advance into Hungary in the autumn of 1944 during World War II. And since then, perhaps because of 45 years behind the Iron Curtain, the location of Bathory's remains have been lost to history. Now, the family would continue to play an active but diminished role in Hungarian politics, although some of her descendants would see their fortunes increase and decrease over time. They would play a middling role for the next couple of centuries, not being exactly relegated to obscurity, but not running the show either, until the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire after World War I dissolved the Hungarian aristocracy. So ended the life of Elizabeth Bathory, the supposed blood countess. But there is something to this story in my mind that is deeply unsatisfying. And I think that that happens to be the fact that there's no real closure to this story. There's the what, but there isn't the why. The story creates so many more questions than it answers. Mm -hmm. Now, first among the, the questions is this. If she did do what was claimed, why? What led to her becoming such a psychopathic mass murderer, if indeed that's what she was? And we already noted before that a certain amount of violence came with the whole Hungarian nobility in the turn of the 17th century Mishkas, but what is the source of such exceptional violence? Now, one school of thought is a that there had been a head injury or some source of brain damage at some time in her younger life while her brain was still developing. While this could be from a concussion or a fever or perhaps from seizures, it could also revolt, result from the stressors of her possibly giving birth at the age of 13, as we mentioned before, or perhaps from the reports that she had epilepsy or something similar mm -hmm. as a child or another possibility exposure to ergot and we've <laughs> talked about ergot before but if you don't know what it is it's a fungus that grows on the kernels of wheat barley and other grains and when that grain is consumed it can cause significant psychological effects such as hallucinations or extremely erratic behavior now, this is because ergot contains lysergic acid and ergotamine two of the natural precursor ingredients needed for the synthesis of LSD. Woo. You get ergot in your system, you're taking nature's acid trip. And which can be terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And modern studies have shown that when young people whose brains are still developing, especially in childhood and early adolescence, are exposed to powerful, powerful hallucinogens, especially repeatedly, this can lead to the de development of significant psychological effects later in life. Now, of course, in order to create such a monster, in order to, in addition to brain damage, the other key ingredient is what they experience as a part of their environment. Mm -hmm. We've already mentioned that Elizabeth was probably exposed up close and personal to terrible violence as a child, witnessing everything from the casual abuse of servants and your run-of-the-mill hangings through to fantastically inventive and sadistic tortures and executions. It's also likely that Elizabeth was subject to physical abuse in her childhood as well, as beatings were considered to just be part of a good education. So she wasn't just witnessing violence, she was on the receiving end. 
We also have no idea what other forms of abuse or violence she may have been subject to over the course of her life, particularly when young, as these sorts of things happen to women, even, even high-born women, with distressing regularity at this time. And actually now, for that matter. Mm. Yeah, and the one thing that we glossed over, she was raped. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, if the child was spirited away... If this is indeed true, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, she definitely gave birth to a kid, and chances are she wasn't in love when it happened. Yeah. So then we've, we've got to deal with that. So, I mean, was she raped by a, a peasant boy, as they said? Maybe. Was it probably somebody who knew her? Yeah, was it mm-hmm. probably some courtier or something? Probably. Some other who was covering yeah. their ass? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, and it's something we said before, the reason why, and the thing is, she was not on trial for torture. No. That was completely legal. You were allowed to do whatever you wanted Mm -hmm. to your peasants. And even when they're doing, like, whenever they're they're providing things at trial, like any kind of material uh, for the prosecution, they didn't mention the fact that she had a giant torture basement. Because you were allowed to have yeah. one. Yeah, that I was, was the about norm. to say. Yeah. It, it couldn't come up because it's not an exceptional thing. Because they had thing. them, yeah. no. And it, the problem was, it wasn't for the beatings. It wasn't for the torture. <laughs> it wasn't for the flayings. Yeah. It was because she may have been bathing in blood. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, you know, it was because these children the, yeah. died. Keep in mind, the court was using the same torture on the yeah. witnesses. And, and of her accomplices. Mm-hmm. Um, all oh, except man. The, Can you imagine? Oh, not all this except shit the again. youngest. <laughs> Uh, all except for the youngest, he was ser- he was saved the torture because he was I think it was like fourteen or fifteen, How which he was yeah. definitely he was saved the torture, but uh, he was still among the hanged, and then they burned their bodies. Yep, yeah, did not give him a burial. No, it's it, it yeah, it's yeah. I mean, everybody, every castle had a torture basement. Yeah, it, you it know, wasn't, this is not some it special, wasn't weird to be removing fingers. It's not you know. some specialty Airbnb in Chula mm-hmm. Vista, California. It's <laughs> or, or the one I got in, like uh, it was like Norman, Oklahoma. I was like, yeah. first of all, why am I getting an Airbnb here? And I was like, and why are there so many chains? <laughs> like, oh, we're not. I mean, we're not okay. yucking. We're not yucking anybody's yum unless you're a, 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 a medieval baron, a countess. In which case, yeah, probably some some yums to yuck there. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's just. The violence was systemic. It mm-hmm. was casual, and yeah, the problem and the problem wasn't even if you kill servants. If you kill if you kill a servant in the course of disciplining them, you're not yeah. going to go to jail. No. You pay the family restitution. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? And and what, uh, what I'm she of the had belief said, that a fine for a very rich person isn't a punishment. Uh, before the uh, before it got run up the ladder to the Holy Roman Emperor, and uh, then back down again, and then back down. <laughs> Um, the reason Fuck it, why you deal with it. the reason why he was so uh, like suspicious of this yeah. is because they said all these girls died of uh, cholera, but nobody else did. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody else was sick of this. Like yeah, nobody else. Cholera doesn't hit based on gender and age lines. It yeah, and it's just, and it would it would go through the yeah. neighborhoods. It would go it, through the communities. Mm-hmm. It would go through the villages, and it didn't. Yeah, it's an equal opportunity disease for shitting yourself to death. Right. Oh God, we're back on poopy death. We keep ha- this keeps happening. With I think episodes. it's just I think it's just what it is from now on. Yeah, it's, this is now a poopy death podcast. <laughs> it is. So, I mean, we'll, so, I'll, yeah. I'll retool the logo and we'll go from there. But there's there's another thing I want to mention too, and that's her possible suffering from epilepsy or some other disease that causes seizures. How did they treat epilepsy? Yeah, we're getting to this. I mentioned this, yeah, because a popular treatment in pre-modern times, one that goes all the way back to Galen in the second century, 
for fits and seizures was to take the blood of a non-sufferer and uh, either wipe it on the lips, wipe it on the forehead and face, or just have somebody drink the blood. Now, later interpretations of Galen, written by medieval scholars, would also add a religious bent that this blood should be of someone, quote, pure and unsullied, implying that a young virginal person who doesn't suffer from epilepsy should be the source of the blood. Now, could this be something that psychologically imprinted itself on Bathory, the association of blood, particularly that of a young person, with being a curative? Now, one final possible cause is something that wasn't discovered until the advent of modern medicine, but we've seen it with people who have committed particularly gruesome and bloody crimes and have a fascination with human blood and viscera. Are we going to... Oh, man, I'm excited. This, this disorder... I'm excited. ...is called Cotard yeah! Syndrome. Yeah! It's called Cotard Syndrome. <laughs> Settle down, Kyle. Now, Cotard Syndrome tends to manifest at the, as, as delusions that the sufferer is dead or not fully human and therefore cannot die, or they're living in some sort of in-between realm. I'm running out of blood! However, yeah, when Cotard is found alongside some other psychological disorders, it often manifests as the sufferer having delusions that certain parts of them are missing or not functioning, particularly in relation to their blood or their internal organs. And this often leads to the consumption of blood and organ meat, normally raw, or the injection of foreign blood into the body. Add a head injury and you got Richard Chase. Yep. Most of the time this is most of the time this just means that the sufferer goes to a butcher shop and can and and buys awful and blood and go or goes after all sorts of small animals. But some more extreme cases can manifest in violence against living people in order to get what the sufferer believes they need. And the best example of this, as you mentioned, Kyle, is Richard Chase, a severely disturbed serial killer who believed that he didn't have enough blood in his body to function and that it would make his heart stop beating. The vampire of Sacramento. <clears throat> yeah, he began killing and eating uh, small animals raw and drinking their blood, but his delusions eventually did lead to the killing and cannibalization of six people in Sacramento in the late 1970s. Baby in a blender. Yeah, he did put a he did put a baby quite in a literally blender. put a baby in a blender. Yes, he did. He also had a strangely high pitched voice. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, what is what you need to do? That's so uh, don't don't watch his videos. They're no. available, but like maybe don't. Hey, I'm glad you're mentioning me. I go through a lot of horse shit on the day to day. I'm glad you're all thinking of me. I mean, yeah, while, while Richard Chase's acts don't exactly match Elizabeth Bathory's profile, there's a lot of similarities there to consider, and it remains a possible explanation for her actions. While we're on the subject of serial killers, I was thinking about this. And initially at the trial, uh, she was brought up for the torture and murder of 80 people. Well, yeah. 80, 80 girls. Like it's Because that's what it was. It wasn't like her her modus operandi was girls. Yes. Um, if it's 80... She would be responsible for more than double of Ted Bundy. Mm -hmm. Like America's probably most prolific serial killer, mm, at least most well, famous. If Samuel Little, if what Sam we can Samuel Little is saying, if it's believes, true, yeah, I was yeah. gonna say, yeah. I, I'm, and I, I'm even a little dubious. So, yeah, there. no, I think a lot of his stuff is just for attention. Yeah, um, I think that's why he's doing. I mean, it. He he's not a he's not a Henry Lee Lucas. No, so it's a I lot would, of yeah. what he's saying is. Yeah. being corroborated and those numbers keep going up and it's I, um, fucked up. I would more compare her because of the status and the access to more like a Mangala than oh, for sure. a traditional mm -hmm. serial yeah. killer. Yeah, this is somebody who has an it was absolutely a missionary killer. They have a reason to be doing this. The killing except it's about the end result, but she is getting so much of a thrill from the torture. Mm -hmm. So she is this weird mix of 
killing for to an end and killing for the sake of the suffering they mm-hmm. they're inflicting and and she's a process and a product process right. and product killer, right. yeah so that is of course if her actions really did happen now just by dint of her position and the nature of society at that time and place Again, we can assume that Elizabeth Bathory was certainly involved in violence of some form, but there's a, a, a popular school of thought that her crimes were either highly exaggerated or altogether never happened. Now, I don't believe that we're that far away, but there are some who believe that she was instead a victim rather than a monster, subject to a conspiracy that took advantage of her vulnerabilities in existing social forces in order to acquire her land and wealth. It's no accident this happened after her husband passed. Yeah. Now, trials of the early 17th century didn't exactly rely on physical evidence most of the time, dealing instead with the testimony of those brought to speak against the defendant, or occasionally, although not nearly as often, on their behalf. Generally in these trials, a lot more witnesses for the prosecution than for the defense. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, while justice systems in the 1600s were not the endless series of kangaroo courts and show trials we often purport them to be nowadays, these things certainly did still happen, especially if those in power had it in for the defendant from the beginning, and the trial was just a formality. Now, if this is the case for Elizabeth Bathory, we have to ask a couple important questions. Who would want to take her down, and why would they want to take her down? Also, if this was a conspiracy to take her down and take her wealth and holdings, what made it so easy? Now, as far as those who would want to take her down, it's a case of Take a look at the list and tick the box of your choosing. Mm-hmm. The Hungarians as a whole had enemies in every direction. The Russians to the east, the Ottomans to the south, Poland-Lithuania to the north. However, if these people wanted the Bathories taken down, this tends to happen at the head of an invading army. Therefore, I think we have to look closer to the fellow barons, counts, and nobles of Hungary and Hungary's new masters to the west, the Habsburgs and their realm, the Holy Roman Empire. So why would they want her taken down? The first reason is simple, money. Mm-hmm. If Elizabeth Bathory goes down, her extensive land holdings and the tax revenues that come with them, plus all the coin in her coffers, could pass into the hands of the competitor of their of her competitors or into the hands of the Habsburgs. The second reason was political. The Holy Roman Empire had been the holders of Hungary since 1526, but this was more like a client kingdom state rather than a full takeover. But by the early 1600s, the Habsburgs were keen to consolidate their power over the region and would have happily removed some of the more recalcitrant nobles that were a little harder bent on maintaining some separation, and a primary among those nobles were the Bathories. The Habsburgs would more, be more than happy to support an effort by other nobility, more in line with their leadership, to take the Bathories down a peg or five and get them out of the way, and if giving some of their lands to the other nobles was the price to pay, then so be it. And then there's the religious reason for doing so. Now, this could take two forms. One was the swirling mess of different religious sects, particularly Christian sects, and the conflict not between not just Catholics and Protestants, between the, but between the different types of Protestants. Mm-hmm. So Calvinists like the Bathories would have been at odds not just with the Catholic Habsburgs, but with the Lutherans, the Baptists, the Anabaptists, the Eastern Orthodox, and everybody else. This could have provided not just a motivator for taking down the Bathories, but a selling point to others as well. The other religious side of things comes from something that was also a part of the zeitgeist in Europe at the time, and that was the persecution of supposed witches. It's not quite the same, but I think it's a derivative of it. Now, while we focus in on in the States on 1692 was the heart of our anti-witch movement, in Europe, the driving energy of mass witch hunts and witch trials started about a century earlier. And, Elizabeth Bath- and the Elizabeth Bathory trial took place right at the heart of this period. It's actually taking place in the same year as the Pendle Witch Trial in Lancashire in England <laughs> that resulted in the deaths of 23 accused witches on the testimony of one nine-year-old girl. Jesus. Now, the sitting king of England, James I, had written a very popular book called Demonology, which was based yeah. entirely around witch hunting. 
Some German cities were racking up three to 500 witchcraft executions per annum in this decade. The populace was primed for these sensational trials built on very little real evidence, who made the fa a favorite target out of women in positions of power or influence, or who defined the prescribed quote-unquote norms of the time, and this cultural energy puts Elizabeth Bathory right in the crosshairs. So, while there is a lot of recorded testimony from her trial, there's no one looking for physical evidence, and most of the testimony is people saying something they'd heard secondhand. Mm -hmm. Also, there's no penalty for lying to the court, or at least no one willing to follow it up if it does happen, particularly if this court is convened by someone with an agenda against the defendant. So, we asked the question of, did she actually do it? But to the court and those that convened it, it really doesn't make a difference no. if this is what's going on. I think we can look at the fact that she was confined rather than executed outright or sent to a nunnery as a piece of evidence that there what may have been a conspiracy. If she goes to the block, she becomes a martyr. Mm -hmm. If she goes to a nunnery, she still has means by which she can get a story out and counteract the narrative. And it comes back to bite her accusers in the ass. Now, if she's locked away and all of her communications in and out are heavily monitored, you've got what you needed, her power's neutralized. Plus, she was vulnerable. She was a widow. Her husband was dead, and all of her living relatives, no matter how powerful and influential, had to take a back seat in these affairs because they couldn't risk pissing off the Habsburgs at a time when everyone was dealing with multiple threats from each direction. It doesn't matter if your king, or if your cousin is the king of Poland-Lithuania, if he's not willing to risk a war with the Holy Roman Empire so that he, can, that he can't afford if, uh, if he's going to intervene on your behalf. So everyone who could save her has to sit back on their hands and hope for the best. So, what conclusion do we arrive at? And that this is a discussion point. I want to open it up to you guys because it, it's... I think we're all of the same school of thought. Big sensational stories tend to come from a kernel of truth. Do I think she slaughtered 800 young girls to bathe in their blood? No. No, I don't. I'd be surprised if she killed 10. <clears throat> do I well, well, no... Now, do I believe that she slaughtered a bunch of young girls? Do I think she had a body count? Yeah. Yeah. We but, know she did. But did she believe in the restorative power of virgin blood? No, probably, probably not. not. Especially whenever you... And I had to do some really fun math on this one. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> the average size of a bathtub, at least now, the one in the one in your, in your bathroom, is between 40 and 42 gallons. So... Assuming that, and another one I had to Google, so now it's going to be real fun watching me get on an airplane, uh, is that the average person contains about five liters of blood. Yep. Um, it shakes out to a little over a gallon. Hang on, I have it. I got to pull up my math. So 40, 40 uh, liquid gallons is 151.4 liters. That's 30 people. <laughs> also, yeah. these are like eight and nine-year-old girls, so it's less. So let's assume she's doing 65 to 70 children to drain all of their blood, assuming you can get all of it yep. <laughs> in a vacuum. Squeeze them out like a toothpaste so, tube. So, I mean, like, realistically, are we saying that she only had, like, seven baths in this blood? Like, I, I just, it, the, the numbers simply it's, don't. Yeah add up okay here did, she, did she kill a shitload of girls yeah she did because uh, she was a violent yeah. psychopath yeah i or i, or I, I think agree. more accurately I, I think it would be fair to call her a sociopath so yeah. I because guess, she did there... show empathy which happens quite a bit whenever the the ottomans started to advance she uh took soldiers she took the wounded she took mm -hmm. the 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 townspeople into the castle walls she fed them yep 
Um, another big, one big, is when big her husband for helping died. destitute yeah. women. Yeah, when her husband like died, um, it was customary for a woman in power. It was actually customary for any woman who loses her husband one year. Mm-hmm. So you can grieve quietly in your home, away from the public eye for one year. She was out like four days later, yeah. like actively consolidating power. So it's this. She definitely had a lot of ambition. She mm-hmm. was smart, but I mean, it's also pretty clear that she had like brain damage. Is there yeah. any actual <laughs> evidence to the murders? To any of them? No physical evidence. There's no whatsoever. physical evidence. But they, again, nobody cared. Yeah, they never. It, found especially a- because whenever they they went to exhume the bodies, because like, oh, they yeah. died of cholera, so we buried them. Like, why did you have the priest give last rites to a grave? Yeah. <laughs> You, typically, you're around for the last rites, and then that aroused some suspicions. But it's there were an awful lot of people, well, an awful lot of her, especially the handmaidens, which can you imagine how bad that end would have been? Yeah. Um, you know, that were suddenly getting cholera. <laughs> and only them. Only them. Only them. The special branch of cholera that only attacks girls between the ages of 8 and 16. Right. It's, it's yeah, it's, she, she had a body count. Oh, she absolutely did. She and had it, a body count, and a lot of times, I think it came from, I don't even think it came from a desire to kill. I think oftentimes she would just get lost in these punishments, and like I said, you she stop, was, you kind of come back to your senses and realize, oh, they're dead. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly not unique. I feel like most landed individuals at that time period likely had some semblance of a body count. Yep. Which I think points to a mixture of things. I think they saw an opening and they took it against her. And another, she was thing a powerful is, woman at a time when that was unheard of, with a ton of money mm-hmm. that, if you get the right circumstances, is not that hard to get the, a hold of. And the family was like, "Well, I'll take twenty five percent instead of zero. So yeah. fuck it. Yeah, whatever she you need to her, do." She and her husband bankrolled the war. Mm-hmm. The country yeah. was broke, and they bankrolled the war. That's the thing, too. So the here's king the king of Hungary and the Holy Roman Empire. Also owned the batteries a lot, lot of, of cash. Money. It's a lot. I mean, we, we see money. this. It's it's the same reason that Edward the First expels the Jews from England in the twelve mm-hmm. seventies. It's the same reason that that the King of France go moves against the Templars in thirteen fourteen. Mm-hmm. It's this same thing. It's I'm going to contrive these circumstances to get this person out of the picture so that my debt to them is null and void. I think that's a big player in it as well. So, let's. I want to examine as we wrap up just how Elizabeth Bathory has affected things moving forward. So, for the rest of the 16 and 1700s, Elizabeth Bathory became the subject of folklore as her life and supposed crimes passed from everyone's living memory. She served as a cautionary tale to the dangers of vanity, of greed, of the desire to play God in the face of God's actual will, a message that was particularly popular with Jesuit writers. And the danger of women wanting to keep a place outside their long-established gender roles. As the second half of the 18th century rolled around, the Bathory story found itself at a crux of two competing parts of the zeitgeist. One was the Enlightenment, where historians and authors from different cultural centers like Vienna, Prague, and St. Petersburg began to examine her story critically and start suggesting that maybe this wasn't entirely on the up-and-up. The other cultural force pushing back against, against this was the fact that in the late 1700s in Central and Eastern Europe, This was a time of mass panic around the subject of vampires. Mm -hmm. All across the continent, the roots of our modern interpretation of vampires and how to fight them was being developed as sensationalist reports of vampire attacks were beginning to whip up the public in a way that hadn't been seen since the mass witch trials of about a century and a half before. 
Now, this panic is a fascinating cultural force and something I can see us doing an examination of in a future episode, but it didn't take long to tie Elizabeth Bathory into this populized vampire lore, and it's easy to see why. Given how much of a role blood plays in the story, as well as themes of youth and eternal life, and the darker, more sexualized undertones that the tales of Bathory's crimes have in common with vampires, it seems like a more, more like an inevitable conclusion rather than some great intellectual leap that she would be classed as someone who may have been a vampire after all. And in the centuries since her death, particularly in the last few decades, the story of Elizabeth Bathory has also heavily permeated certain areas of popular culture. She's been the subject of countless works of poetry, theater, and literature over the last couple of centuries, and the inspiration for many other characters in those same realms. She has especially become a, a popular subject of, fav- of third-wave feminist authors who take on her story from the perspective of the victim of the conspiracy or the misunderstood product of her time, often casting aside the fact that she was at a baseline, probably a very violent person. Mm-hmm. Of late, Bathory or characters inspired by her have become the subject of comic books, McFarlane toys, and video games, too. The story of Elizabeth has been the subject and inspiration for a wide variety of film and TV as well. Lady Gaga's character in Season 5 of American Horror Story is a direct takeoff of Bathory, and we see Bathory covered in lore on Amazon Prime Video, a ton of different podcasts, guilty, <laughs> and and we see a million different takes on Bathory in 1970s horror sexploitation films, the hammer horror and a lot of like art house films that are filled with disjointed violin music and bush hair, and a host of independently produced blood-soaked two thousands horror flicks. Mm-hmm. But no, uh, there's another film that we have we have neglected to mention here, and I did find this out whenever I was doing some some googling of the castle, uh, mm-hmm. either Shetcha or Kashtis, if you want to really Americanize it. Yeah, it is the it is the ruins at the beginning of the movie Dragonheart. Yeah, it is. <laughs> It is. I, I found that out this afternoon. No fucking way. Yeah. They filmed, yeah, the first open scene. And, and another little German film named Nosferatu, but that's whatever. But Dragonheart. The, uh, it had Dennis Quaid in it. The original or the Herzog? Uh, the 22. So, yeah. The um, F.W. Murnau. Yep. Yeah. yep. <clears throat> the original. And, and But nowhere is Elizabeth Bathory's presence felt more than in music. The host of metal, punk, and folk musicians have sung songs about Bathory. I mean, we're talking a laundry list of awesome artists like Nick Cave, Susie and the Banshees, Venom, Slayer, Ghost. I mean, the list goes on. Taylor Swift. (laughs) Doja Cat. (laughs) Cardi B. (laughs) Killed a bunch of seven girls. (laughs) Wet-ass torture room. (laughs) There's some blood in this house. There's some blood in this house. So orchestral... God. Can that be the... the Whenever you were talking about music, I'm like, this is where Rob is going to get real rah-rah with his Lady Gaga shit. And I was like, here it comes. No, it has nothing to do with... No, it has nothing to do with Lady Gaga. I was waiting for it, She's never done an Elizabeth Bathory. The closest she's come to doing anything Bathory like outside of American Horror Story... Wearing a meat dress? Wearing the fucking meat dress. Yeah. The old meat suit. (laughs) So orchestral composers have taken on the story of Elizabeth Bathory for about two centuries now, and there are nearly three dozen surviving symphonies, operas, and concertos about her out there. Some artists are also a little more inspired, especially the Swedish band who named themselves Bathory and are far and away the godfathers of the genre of black metal, um, particularly for our future episode subjects in the Norwegian black metal scene. Actually, of particular note, the lead singer of Mayhem, the preeminent band in that scene, mm-hmm. uh, a guy named Dead. Uh, 
He's the best. Just called dead. He actually suffered from Cotard syndrome, the same disease that may have driven Elizabeth Bathory to seek out the blood of the young. It manifested a little differently. Yeah. <laughs> he just got really depressed and like he would like bury dead crows in bags and pull them out before shows so he could sniff them and go on stage with the stink of death in his nostrils. Yeah, he tried to have that. his bandmates bury him alive and they were like, no. No, dude, dude no. Chill the fuck out. It. I mean, his, his suicide note said, apologies for the blood, cheers. Also, his suicide picture was like an album cover for them eventually. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, it was. It's, Could have been uh, worse. The other bands usually just ate the drummer. But yeah, but we'll talk about Gorgoroth some other time. <laughs> Ooh, Gorgoroth is special. They still uh, are wearing his skull fragments. Yeah, in, in, they, they in made fun of Jorio. Yeah, yeah. After they uh, ate him, this is why you don't trust skinny white nerds. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, we, we will eventually at some point cover the Norwegian black metal oh, scene so because it, yeah, it's I mean, fucking. Insane. It's nuts. It's also just full of so much self serious goofiness. It's the the thing the thing that really gets me about it is they are not in on the joke at all. They some of them are now. Some yeah. Well now, but it's, like at the time, changed, but back in the nineties. Then they were just burning down churches and shit. Yeah. Like. <laughs> now Elizabeth Bathory has also become uh, curiously become sort of a talismanic figure for a bunch of different people. Now God's lover. We know this, and as as they do a bunch of other dark figures, and even if she did commit these crimes, their fascination with her is, I think, pretty harmless. Hmm. It's, it, she's an ooky spooky figure, and they're trying to be ooky spooky people. Fair enough. In the same way people look at Vlad Tepes. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah. It, now, if there are some goss out there that start murdering eight hundred young girls, I might change my mind on that. But right. so far, it's so okay. far, so far, okay, so good. So marketing idea: yeah. we sell, to, we market to goss. Bathory bath bombs that just turn your tub red. I'm writing that down. <laughs> Make a Wix page right I, now. I am fucking writing that down. Hang on. <laughs> Man, our merch page when we launch it is going to be weird. <laughs> so okay, it's it's in it's in the notes. Yeah, excellent. But Bathory's also a focus object for a lot of conspiracy minded people. Fucking Bathory bath bombs. <laughs> <laughs> What the fuck? <laughs> Why is that so goddamn funny to me? <laughs> it's just so alliterative. So many things I've I've not seen a whole lot break, Chris, when we record these episodes. <laughs> I just but... like looked at it and it's written down. Like, it's right here on the end in the end notes. <laughs> Bathory bath bombs. But yeah, so, so fucking stupid. <laughs> but yeah, but Elizabeth Bathory is also a focus object for a lot of conspiracy-minded people, constantly trying to tie her into groups like the Illuminati and the Freemasons. Despite the uh, a century and a half, and why about why is it always lizard people? <sighs> I don't know. It's I mean, even always the fact lizard people. Disregarding That's... the fact that a century and a half and about two thousand miles of distance separates Elizabeth Bathory from anything that turned into a modern iteration of the Masons. And of course, these QAnon dumb fucks oh, love Jesus talking God. about her because it's not a big leap to go from drain the blood of innocent youths to help her remain young to adrenochrome. God fucking damn it. Well, although, that's just because they don't care for the chosen people. Although I'm still trying to figure out I'm still trying to figure out how they're trying how they're tying the deep state back to Hungary in 1605. We'll get there. Now, these dipshits have a lot of things that Hideo Kojima did it with Metal Gear. All yeah. of a sudden, they were like uh, there was a secret president. Yeah. And, and, and these dipshits they have a lot the of shit out yeah. of a ninja. Like what the fuck? It started <laughs> yeah. with sneaking around. Yeah. 
And, and look, these dipshits have a lot of things that make them dangerous, but their focus on Elizabeth Bathory probably is low on that list. The final main group to latch onto Bathory is nowhere near as harmless, and that is fundamentalist Christians. They love talking about Elizabeth Bathory because to them, she's representative of what happens when you let the sinfulness, decadence, and libertine ways of the secular world take over, despite the fact that the 16th century Calvinism she was brought up in would make even these people sit back and go, holy shit, let's, okay, let's chill out a bit. Like, okay, do you guys remember Chick Tracts? Yeah. Yeah. If you don't know what those are, if you people don't know, out there don't know what Chick Tracks are, they're these little comic books that this guy named Jack Chick, who was an evangelical whack job, but also actually a They're honestly, good, a, they're amazing. They're, they're pretty they good comic book incredible. artists. Yeah. They're these little, these little multi-panel reality, or norm, uh, morality plays, yeah, essentially. They, they came out around the, the when the uh, Big Satanic in the 90s. Panic was 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 Right, in line with the Satanic Panic. Now, if you're looking at them from an ironic standpoint, they're hilarious. Yeah. The fact that millions of people took them seriously. Yeah, it's not okay. But there's at least three of them that mention Elizabeth Bathory by name. Huh. And, and, and yeah, they love this woman. They go, when you let the secular world in, this is what you get. Her Calvinism notwithstanding. And then there's the more extreme voices in the pro-life movement who love to mention Elizabeth Bathory because there's something about a woman operating outside her limited norms, dealing in blood and the killing of youth, that suits their imagery so well. I mean, look, I say, fuck off. Go listen to some DC talk or jars of clay or whatever. Chill the fuck out. (laughs) And DC talk. (laughs) And and, and, that's two in a row, you dorks. (laughs) And leave her to the goths. Let the goths have her. They know how to handle her. Let it happen. So however many questions still exist, however many holes there are in the story, and however you may attribute the folklore about her, one thing we can't deny is that Elizabeth Bathory, known to history as the Blood Countess, has left an indelible impression on a world always fascinated with blood and brutality. Whether she was a monster or the victim of a monstrous system or somewhere in between, we will never exactly know. But in the long run, I don't think it really matters. Her story is now watermarked on the world, and the songs, pages, and streamed films are going to keep coming, as steady and inevitable as the flow of freshly drawn blood. And that's our story. What say you, gents? I don't think Bathory was super chill. <laughs> now, do I, do I believe that she, she bathed in virginal blood? No. I'm, no. I think she might have... A little, yeah. I'm sure at some point it was blood, but we know we know for a fact she drank it. Yeah, like it was it was used. She did it as a kid. Yeah, mm-hmm. if she had epilepsy, yeah, they would have poured it right. down her throat. Yeah, um, I think that it was ultimately in her case there was an opportunity to seize the assets mm-hmm. of at this point one of the most powerful women in existence. Yes, yeah. I mean, like. When we say that she was incredibly powerful, um, we're talking like Cleopatra. But would be mm-hmm. she was like that yeah. would be that's about where we would set the watermark. Um, and I, I think ultimately it came down to Mary Tudor, Elizabeth First. Like this, she's up there with yeah, them, the rarefied air there. Um, like I said, whenever Hungary ran out of money, they paid for the war yeah. for nine years. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, oh, here's a couple bucks to hold you over. For nine years. And didn't go broke doing it. No. And didn't get paid back. No. So didn't even miss it. 
and and I think that that they saw that opportunity and they took it. Um, did she deserve it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the thing too. Is if even on a more moderated look at what she probably did, a more realistic look at what she probably did, she is guilty of terrible, terrible crimes. That in no way sets her apart from anybody no. else in her No, and station. it doesn't. And that's it's, the thing. Like the trial, the trial was not about her torturing no. children. No, it wasn't. That had nothing to do with it. Because it really was about legal. It. it wasn't even about doing it to poor girls. Mm-mm. Yeah, the biggest statements that they centered around were the statements of some of her later supposed victims, who and were the, part of the gentry. It's yeah, once and the you reason start why going is after because, people with status because she ran out of peasant girls, and now she's basically bringing in interns, mm-hmm. uh, and and now instead of paying the the families of the deceased, other families are paying her for their daughter to come live there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's yeah. That's the thing. Is it's, it's and only only whenever they they had the money to represent themselves did this happen it is such god awful violence and so such terrible bloodshed and it's just another day right whenever it's just another day but could you imagine to- the sense of relief that that the people that lived uh, in the villages surrounding the castle felt when her husband wasn't home because Every week, they would publicly torture somebody for something, mm-hmm. and it, it really didn't matter what you did. Like it was, and if if they couldn't find somebody that that committed some sort of offense, they found an offense for you. Yeah, and every week, everybody would come to these things, and it wasn't. It was par for the course. Oh, it's her first memories too is when was she a goes- man being sewn into <laughs> a horse. The horse and the man were both alive. Yeah. I, what the fuck did the horse do? <laughs> and like, did he steal the horse? Because I mean, the guy was—he was being punished for theft. But like, yeah, if he stole the horse, give the fucking horse back. Like, what did the horse do? <laughs> It's—that's the thing. It's like, yeah, when you make a reverse human turducken, it's <laughs> like, and that's your baseline. That's. Tuesday. It's a man in a horse. Usually, whenever we talk about horses on this podcast, it's about the horse being in someone else. <laughs> I feel like we missed out. I got out you, Padre. Yeah. I got you, buddy. <laughs> I was going to say, wait, <laughs> or who's running interference for Mike on the? On the I, I wasn't going to let that one go. But go. still, but like even then, what the fuck did the horse do? Yeah. Like, oh God. It's well, yeah, well, and everybody's like say, laughing can you, and can laughing. Can you imagine though? She gets locked away in her castle. You know, her her tiny little cell of whatever she goes to thirty five thousand square foot castle where Dragonheart was filmed. Yeah, <laughs> and and it it the the relief in the peasant population going, and then the next one just comes along. Yeah, and nothing changes. And it, it yeah, it's I mean it's it's a terrible lot in life, and it's yeah, it's this awful bloody story that actually is not exceptional. No, it's really not. In any way. That's the thing. Is At the root of this story is it's just, eh. It's, it's just the same old shit for the time. And thank God we have the folklore to make this one stand out, but that's exactly what it is. It's folklore, it's exaggeration, and it's... And a lot of the stories that we hear yeah. today came out about a century after she, was, yeah. After yeah. she had died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why I'm so I don't, I'm hesitant to 
put much stock yeah. in, in, in some of the more sensational stories. Yeah. And so our final conclusion, was she a brutal murderer? Yes. Oh, yeah. Was there a, needed to go. Was there a conspiracy against her? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it would it's be, that simple. it would be incredibly difficult to, uh, to, to debunk that one. I mean, yeah. there's too many people benefited. There's a lot of Occam's razor here. Quibono. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and I mean, like what this essentially boils down to is that she was a really fucking horrible person and she was probably responsible for the deaths of, if I would estimate like, to the point where they ran out of children, it had that be- I think is an, well, no, that I think is an, that I think is an exaggeration. I think that is an exaggerated point because that is a that's kind of modern conjecture. That's more mm-hmm. of a modern application. You don't see there were no young women left. You don't see yeah. that in the statements at the time. You don't see that in the trial. That I think is more of a um, a modern conceit on these things. I think she just slipped up. I think she's talked. I think. There was like maybe a girl in the gentry or the the wealthy merchant class who just became a target of opportunity. I think that's where she slipped up. I think that's where Magyari gets involved. I think that's. I think that was where it uh, where it all started to go for. And, and I she, think that's the big thing that got she the had a witch on move into the house and just start like casting spells. Well, supposedly, yeah, the one with <laughs> nine hundred cats that suddenly just fell on everybody. Like, it, yeah, it's it gets tied that, into whenever uh, uh, Torja was going to. Uh, make the arrest whenever yeah. they said that they saw her and Bathory leave the castle and cast a spell of protection before running back in. They all just stopped. We're like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> Do you see this? Do we keep going? Well, you know, people <laughs> ask people ask the big question. Is the story real or is the story bullshit? Answer, it's a little bit of both, but the story is also really fucking heavy metal. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, a great, it's great story. It's, and so, yeah, especially as a fundamentalist Christian, I can't get enough of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, look, I mean, I'm looking at that big stack of chick tracks behind you on your bookshelf. <laughs> These teeny tiny little comic books. So, yeah, so that's the story for this time. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening, for taking the journey with us. Chris, if people want to find us out there, how can they do it? If you want to find us, by all means, you can... Uh, <clears throat> Join the crew at patreon.com slash trrpod. Email us at trrpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast trr. Follow us on Instagram at trrpod. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, and uh, again, be sure wherever you are uh, listening to this, you throw us a like, a review, whatever platform you use, because again, uh, we are subject to the almighty algorithm. Mm-hmm. And again, thank you to everybody who's been supporting us on Patreon. It's very, very kind of you. Mm-hmm. Very, very helpful, and it's helping to make everything bigger and better. And also, you'll be listening to this uh, long before everybody else. Yes, and also, if the, uh, to our, our listeners out there, uh, we know there are a lot of you who have hustles, who have things that you're doing, who have these passion projects, who have these you know, great things that you're putting out there into the world or great organizations that you're working with. We are now looking for advertisers. We want to, and, and we're not, we don't want to take the route that people tend to take with podcasts. We don't, we, yeah, we, you know about audible. We, you don't need us to tell you about it, but (laughs) what we want to do, we're not on anchor, but what we want to do (laughs) is we want to start bigging up a lot of the things that people have going on out there. These things that people are putting out of the world, the people are creating content, creating products, creating services. If you have something you're creating, get in touch with us. We want to start cross-pollinating. We want to get the word out about what you're out there doing. And and so we want to start going out to the community of creatives and building those bonds and helping to reinforce that community. So please, 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 if you do have something going on out there, if you got your own podcast, if you got your Etsy store, anything like that, please get in touch with us. We want to talk to you. 
Yeah, we also hit a pretty cool milestone the other day. Uh, as of recording this episode, even before it it hits your ears, uh, I would like to thank everybody who's uh, who's been checking us out because we hit our ten thousandth stream. Yep, that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I like yeah, that. So big thank you, everyone out there. It was pretty cool to see the the digits go from. It was you know like nine thousand four hundred whatever. See that fifth one pop. And now up. it's just ten k. It doesn't even tell us how many we have. Anyway. It's just ten k. I'm like that's awesome. I that's love pretty that. cool. So yes, so I want to thank all of you beautiful yeah. people for listening. And you, speaking of beautiful people, did you know that Estonia has the highest ratio of international supermodels per capita? Uh, per capita, it's higher than anywhere else in the world. And that's why it's going to be our first stop on our international tour. I can't wait. I love the. I love Estonia. All this Googling of Estonia. Now I definitely want to go there. It's really, really fucking pretty. Yep. Oh, it's a beautiful place. I mean, the Baltic is beautiful. We, mm-hmm. we. That's the thing is, we shit on Eastern Europe a lot. It's. There's a lot of reasons not to. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, please take it in stride. We don't mean it. Please let us <laughs> into your country. Please God. Please God. Help us. Help us. It's so cold yeah. here. And of course, so yeah, so thank you everybody for tuning into this one. It's kind of a dark story, um, but next time, yeah, tis the season. It's time for some holiday cheer. It's going to be our 2021 Christmas special. No, our it's uh, non-denominational holiday. 2021 non-denominational holiday spectacular. Yeah, we're not we're not stepping on any toes here. Yeah. Didn't we talk about pooping in that one, too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Poop walk. Yeah, the, the, the oh, Catalan. that's right. So, yeah, so yeah. the four of us, we're going to get together. We're going to talk about some weird Christmas stuff. We're going to talk about some Christmas folklore. Probably tell some stories about some bad Santas. Yeah. Yeah, we're just going to sit here and drink. And I'm going to watch Bad Santa. Yeah, we're just going to sit here. and we're going to in ages. We're going to wow. drink some cheerful drinks. I'll um, make eggnog. Fuck it. Yeah, actually, I, have, I, I think we should come up with a special holiday drink for the podcast, and we... Send out the recipe. I think that might be a fun. Can we thing. call okay. it? The Yule? I mean, that'll... can we name it the Yule Cat? Yes, yes, Kyle. Yes, we can. For the mighty Amelia, I might pick out a Yule goat this year. Mm. I don't want one of those goats. Except now, like you can't have anything Nordic, or uh, I'm just uh, a bunch of people. With, well, you can't have uh, anything Nordic in front of the wrong people. Yeah, I just don't want a bunch of really fucking weird people just agreeing with me. <sighs> God, <laughs> it's. Yeah. I already shaved my head and have a beard. I'm like I'm close. <laughs> so Kyle, if he's if 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 he's getting a Yule goat, do I cancel the poop log I have ordered for him? Nah, we'll just I'll, I'll give him that. You never cancel the you never cancel the poop log. Yeah, cannot interrupt the impending arrival of Cagatillo. Cagatillo. It's not gonna happen. And we're gonna sing the Cagatillo song. I'm not singing the Cagatillo. We're gonna sing the Cagatillo. You song. can do whatever the fuck you want. I'm just, <laughs> I ain't singing. <laughs> All right, so the three of us here, and Mike, wherever he may be at the moment, I mean, we know where he's at. But yeah, he's working. We want to keep with that air of mystery going on. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. That's so where we always are when we're not here. We're fucking yeah, working. That's true. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to catch you next time. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, next time is the Christmas special, so uh, hold fast. Till then, we're going to Krampus Knock tomorrow. Oh, hell yeah. It's Krampus Knock this time of recording. My liver hurts already. Bye-bye now. Hold fast and happy Krampus.